Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And right off the top, I want to say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and for the entire from the entire team here. Recently, we charted as high as number 28 on Apple Podcasts. And um, we know that's because you've been sharing this podcast with the world. And um, as you may know, there's over 900,000 podcasts on Apple. So to hit 28 is um, an absolutely mind-altering reality. So I just want to thank you so much. We did our first listener survey this last summer, and approximately 80% of you said that you heard about this podcast from somebody you know. And so I just want to thank you. We all want to thank you so much for your support and for continuing to share uh, this podcast with the world. All right, on this episode, we got a beauty. We continue our run of legendary authors. None other than Courtney Carver is here. And she is the author of A uh, Soulful Simplicity and the brand new Project 333. And we talk about what she calls the Project 333 Challenge. And that is wearing only 33 items of clothing for three months. And... um, We talk about why people who do this report less anxiety, more clarity, and focus. We also talk about how to live a more simple life overall and why having stuff and the pursuit of stuff doesn't make us very happy and how easy it is to slide into a ton of stupid debt just buying stupid stuff that doesn't make us happy. And look, I'm a guy who doesn't think very much about my wardrobe, but I can tell you, uh, Courtney is a very thoughtful gal. This is a fun conversation about uh, how to dress, how to make your life simpler, and a whole lot more. And I know I say it all the time, but this is another great example of the power of a dialogue podcast. Um, and you may be surprised to, uh, to hear Courtney talk about how having a life-changing disease became a catalyst for radical positive change in her life. She sure is awesome. Uh, go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode and more on Courtney. And now um, every company needs a growth plan and a growth strategy. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. NetSuite is the number one platform for high growth companies. As a matter of fact, NetSuite is relied on by over 19,000 companies from over 200 companies. Uh, and that's because NetSuite is number one in cloud ERP, giving you the the visibility and control that you need over all of the seminal components of your business so that you can grow from the garage to the IPO and beyond. That's my friends at NetSuite. I want to encourage you to visit NetSuite.com slash different today. And while you're there, you'll be able to pick up the, uh, the the seven key strategies to grow your profits, as well as schedule a demo. Visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different and get your business growing. <laughs> My friends at Splunk want to remind you that we're living in the data age and uh, Splunk is the leader, the category kings and queens of data to everything, helping you bring data to every question, every decision and every action. And I think we are now at a point where data, I know this sounds crazy, is more valuable than cash because data, frankly, is more monetizable. And that's why I'm so proud to be associated with my friends at Splunk. Visit Splunk.com slash D the number two 
E as in data to everything. That's S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash data to everything. Also, I want to thank Alyssa Fortunato for helping to make this episode with Courtney happen. Now, here she is. Hey ho, let's go. I've been living in Courtney land for the last several days as I've read your book and I've uh, been listening to your wonderful new podcast with your daughter and uh, Co- Courtney land's a fun place to hang out. <laughs> it can be. <laughs> now, the, the big thing I thought of when I was reading uh, Project 333 is I had no idea how much people thought about their wardrobe. Yeah, they do. It's I mean, at least from my experience, I used to think about my wardrobe a ton. And I know, like, just from talking about this challenge and things that I didn't really know anything about, to see the response from people who have either overshopped or really thought that other people were judging them by what they wear or whatever it is, we all have this connection to our clothes. And I mean, maybe it is more women, but definitely I've heard from a lot of men too, who feel the same. It doesn't occur to me that I have a wardrobe anymore. I think when I was an executive and an entrepreneur and I was traveling and in lots of business meetings and all that, I I thought about it more than I do today. But <laughs> I was saying to my wife this morning, telling her that you and I were going to have this time together. And I said, yeah, I wake up every morning and go, hmm, is it the blue t-shirt or the black t-shirt? Right. That's great. What, did she have anything, any thoughts on her own wardrobe? I sort of started to tell her about, you know, because of course I've read the book and, and so forth. And her general reaction was, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's common. I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> and she, I, she's one of these gals that I don't know, I, I guess I should ask her the question directly, but I, I get the impression that people not only think about their wardrobe, but it it creates a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. Yes, either either it creates anxiety or it's just like fuel on the fire of their existing anxiety because it's just one more thing that they have to think about and deal with and make decisions about. And we have enough decisions to make every day. We don't need to be wondering what we're going to wear all the time or be really thinking about it as much as we do, or as I did, for sure. Yeah. And I think maybe, uh, maybe Carrie, I don't know, I, I'll ask her directly, but the impression I get is it's not that big of a concern for her, but I could be totally wrong. Mm. Now, at the beginning, right at the beginning of the book, one of the things that you say that sort of knocked me over, but as I thought about, it, I guess makes sense is that the average woman uh, owns $550 worth of clothing that she's never put on. They never that they've never worn, yeah. And so, what's what's this business of us buying clothes we never even freaking wear? Well, I know this is a thing because I used to do it, and anytime I have been in a room talking with people about their closets, I'll ask the question: Does anybody have tags still hanging on their clothes in their closet, like right at this moment? And always, like without fail, more than half the room will raise their hand. And I think it comes from, well, first of all, we have this like obsession with getting a great deal. And so we might buy something just because it's a good deal when the only good 
part of the deal is the money part. And we never really wanted it in the first place. Um, we might also buy it because we think we need it or should have it to measure up to the people around us in our work or our day-to-day lives. It's such a fascinating emotional ride to dig into closets and wardrobes. Uh, and I had no idea, like until I got rid of most of my stuff, I had no idea how emotional it was for me because I was just really used to it all the time. Like I was used to seeing those clothes with the tags. I was used to understanding on some level that I spent way too much money on things that I don't wear or enjoy. And they were making me feel bad every single day. But until they were gone, I didn't realize that I just felt like mildly shitty every single morning. And why? Because my clothes were this constant reminder that I was in debt, I was not content, and what I had was never enough for me. So if I've had this experience, it would be like subliminally, because I've never, because I read that stuff in the book, and I was like, I don't ever remember opening my closet, Courtney, and going, all these this fucking stuff in here makes me depressed or angry or anxious or, or concerned. Or, well, you wouldn't think that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just go in there and like, I, and today my wardrobe is probably as simple as it's ever been, but, and I don't even think I have a wardrobe, by the way, when I say that, I feel like a pompous idiot. Cause I, I just have a, <laughs> what I have are jeans and t-shirts and look, I know how to wear a nice shirt and I know how to wear a nice suit. And so I, I have some of that stuff that I used to wear all the time. Well, do you still have things that you don't wear now then? Like stuff that you had for your old job, for instance? Oh, sure. I mean, I have, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I absolutely have suits from the 1990s. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Your your book made me think about that. <laughs> well, and, and, and as I thought about it, of course, I hadn't thought about it. It's not like I was holding on to it. So I'm not like purposely doing anything. It just, they just are, are there. And then I thought, okay, so why do I have some of these suits? Some of which are easily 20 years old. And I go, well, they're, they're Prada suits. You know, I used to buy nice shit. And I, I mean, I still do when I buy, you know, more dressy sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a Prada suit from 1998. It looks awesome. I don't know. I guess I should get rid of it though, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, you said you don't have a wardrobe, but it sounds like you have a wardrobe museum <laughs> for all your nice stuff. <laughs> no, I do. Listen, when I, I started in business young, and so I wanted to be taken seriously. And candidly, I wanted to look older. I mean, I grew a beard and I wanted to present myself, you know, as professionally uh, as possible. And so even when I started, I didn't have any money. But the one thing we spent any kind of money on were clothes and business cards, right? So that you looked like you were a substantive person, even though in point of fact, you were not. (laughs) I was going to say, just you saying that really is what a lot of us have dealt with. And I think I even write about it in the book that we buy clothes to prove ourselves to other people. Like you were saying, you wanted to look older. You wanted people to perceive you as successful or like a good fit for whatever the job was. And we do that not only in our jobs, but in our day-to-day lives. And that is a lot of the exhausting part. Like almost pre- you're kind of pretending you're someone you aren't yet. But it sort of worked for me. <laughs> I don't know how much of it was the clothes, but you know, you sort of, 
And I, you know, I talked to particularly, you know, young salespeople and young marketing professionals and so forth. And, you know, that old axiom, you know, dress for the job that you want, like you already have that job, right? And there's a reason every, it seems every male a candidate for the president of the United States wears a blue suit, a white shirt, and a red tie, right? I don't know why that they think that works, but they all seem to subscribe to it. And so there is an element of um, sort of looking the part. And the other thing your book made me think about is, you know, in my line of work as a, as a marketer, there is an element of wanting to look like a more creative person as opposed to, you know, the way you might look as an accountant. Sure. I understand that on a very deep level. And I guess for me, the reason it was a problem is that I was dressing for a job that I didn't even want. So I was trying to prove myself as this extroverted salesperson when that wasn't what I was. And I was never going to be that person, although I was really good at what I did. I just couldn't stand it. So that pretending worked for me too in the beginning. But then it started to kind of eat me up on the inside and really ended up not working. And that opened the door to a lot of other questions I had about my relationship with my clothes and my other stuff. Like it wasn't just my closet. I mean, it's all the stuff in our homes and our lives that we insist on having for reasons that typically don't make any sense at all. Well, and that's the other thing, of course, your, your book made me think about stuff. And I don't know if you remember that George Carlin routine about stuff that sort of accumulating stuff was the meaning of life. Do you remember that? Totally. Yeah, it's very funny. And the other thing it made me think of, and I thought you might appreciate this story. You know, so I know some billionaires living in Silicon Valley and being in that world at least a little bit. And um, uh, one of them I know uh, decided that he had accumulated way too much stuff. And so he literally hired an accounting firm to go do an analysis of what he owned, where it was, and sort of inventory all of it, so he could sit down and see all of his stuff, like in a spreadsheet or whatever. And then they spent two years getting rid of, I, don't, I can't remember exactly what percent, but it might have been 90%. Like he had homes he'd never been to. And, you know, like, you know, you think about owning too many clothes or too many pairs of shoes or whatever. Imagine having homes you'd never been to. Anyway, it sort of reminded me, you know, we get sold this thing that more stuff's going to make us happy. Here's this guy who's a billionaire. He's got so much stuff. He doesn't even know what he owns. And then he wakes up one day and goes, I got to get rid of all the fucking stuff. And then he has to pay an accounting firm to figure it all out. It, it seems so crazy. And I, I couldn't help but remember that story as I was reading your book. Yeah. I think we're all doing that on some level when we get sick of our stuff or we realize how much it's distracting us from our lives. And I'm not saying like get rid of everything, but get rid of the stuff you don't use. Like why, why bother giving it any attention at all? And so it seems like um, maybe you'll tell me, but this Project 333 idea is sort of... Um, took off on you in maybe a somewhat unexpected uh, way. It seems like a, a, a mini phenomena going on here. Am, am I reading this right, Courtney? Yeah, yeah as things do, uh, take me by surprise most of the time. This was certainly one of those things. It really started out as a personal challenge, uh, something I started you know, almost 10 years ago with a very small blogging community, just sharing it with them. And it, it, 
immediately took off like from that very first post that maybe a few hundred people saw uh, because so many people wanted to try the challenge on their own and they started blogging about it and um, sharing it on social media. And then the Associated Press got wind of it. And then it was just off and running from there. And so it's become its own creature. And so if I wanted to, do you consider it like a, a, a challenge? That's how it sort of feels to me. Yeah. So it starts as a challenge. It definitely started as a challenge for me. I still do it all these years later, just because it makes my life so much easier. And other people may try it for a season and then decide to do something different, or they may continue as well. And so if I said to you, okay, why should I consider doing this? Like what is, I've never thought about this. I never really thought much about my wardrobe. Certainly not lately. I, I don't look at my closet <laughs> anxiety, but uh, so with all that said, why, why would you say to somebody like me, Hey, you should, you should try wearing 33 things for, for three months. Well, I'd start by saying that maybe it's not for you. Like it might not be the perfect challenge for everyone. I mean, if you only have 20 items of clothing, then doing a wardrobe challenge that helps you pare down to 33 might not make any sense. Fortunately, lots of people are in a different situation and really want that time out from shopping, from thinking about what they're going to wear and really figuring out what's important to them. So typically what people discover, and I've certainly realized this in my own life, is that it starts off in your closet, but this fashion challenge has nothing to do with clothes and your wardrobe and your closet or hangers. That's just the the vehicle. It's just the way that you step into realizing how you relate to your things and what your relationship is for shopping and acquiring stuff. And it helps you after those three months when you realize that all the things you thought were true aren't. Make decisions based on facts instead of what you think is true. It, it is part of the problem we just there's something about being a human being that we like to go shopping. We like buying shit for some reason. Well, I think we do. And I think that sometimes we do it just because we're bored um, or because maybe we're celebrating and thinking of all the reasons I did it. But I think we also constantly need something new because we're in some kind of pain, whether that be anxiety or depression or um, we're bored or frustrated or we hate our jobs or we're unhappy in some other aspect of our life. I mean, it, there's so many quick, easy fixes to shut that pain down, whether it be food, alcohol, drugs, shopping. Um, add to cart is like certainly the the quickest I, I way to shut the that drinking down. Myself, but, um. <laughs> And and some people do, but it is a thing. Like we are all in some kind of pain from time to time, um, probably more often than not. And who wants to feel that? We just want to shut it down. And so we get into this pattern of just easing that pain. I mean, you think about like, I mean, I can think about in my history, like after a breakup, what would I want to do? Go shopping and eat ice cream. It eases the pain. But when it becomes a habit, it's a real problem. So now let's say I was somebody who said, okay, um, I kind of get this. 
This seems interesting to me. I want to give it a try. I'm going to do a, a, a cleanse of my closet, right? Like, like you might, you know, I, I have these friends, everyone, you know, of course, living in Santa Cruz, California, everybody's trying whatever new hippy dippy diet thing, whatever uh, you can imagine. And so I have friends who are regularly doing these cleanses, <laughs> right? So let's say I want to do this. I say, okay, I got you, Courtney. You're the, you're the, you're the goddess of this stuff. I'm excited. I want to try this, uh, uh, project 33 challenge. Um, what's the advice you'd give me to sort of, uh, figure out what I want in my 33 and, 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 and navigate the waters of the three months. Yeah. Well, um, just on a side note, I'm drinking celery juice every morning. So I totally understand that desire to <laughs> try all the new things. To me. <laughs> oh no, it's nice. It's a nice way to start the day, but in any case, well, God, um, bless you. <laughs> Well, just to clarify, the 33 items includes clothing, the clothes that you wear on a day-to-day basis, um, accessories, jewelry, and shoes. It doesn't count things like sleepwear, underwear, or loungewear, like stuff you might wear around the house but not leave the house in. Uh, It also doesn't count workout clothes, but I like to say that your workout clothes have to work out. So if you're running errands in your yoga pants, just count them. And I'm sure you're not running errands in your yoga pants, but some people do that. No, and I like to do no, that I myself. <laughs> There's a long discussion so, we could have about yoga pants. Um, yeah. <laughs> but before that, I, I, I did want to say loungewear. I think mm. loungewear is underrated. I like, ha- yeah. I like having some loungewear. Or leisure, leisure wear, right? Loungewear. I think loungewear is the right term, but yeah, I like sort to wear like sweatpants or something. Totally. I'm down with sweatpants and a t-shirt to watch a movie in or something like that, but I'm not probably going to wear that outside myself. I don't mind if somebody else does. They would just have to count that in their 33 items if they were doing the challenge. Um, so if you're wearing it out, it, it counts except if it's workout wear, essentially. Is as that long it? as you're going to work out. Okay, so 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 now this is important, I think, because I live in a part of the world where there's a law that says a minimum of 60% of the women at all times must be in yoga pants. And so if I'm wearing them to get coffee or to go see my girlfriends or whatever it is I'm doing in my yoga pants, do they count as workout pants or do they count as one of the 33? I mean, I count a pair of leggings as a part of my 33. If you're going to get a coffee and then you're going to yoga, you don't have to to count them. But if they're really just part of your daily wear, then count them. Okay. I think I got it. All right. So... So now I'm, I'm, let's say I'm getting ready to start the challenge and I'm trying to go th- navigate the waters called, yeah. how do I decide what are the 33? Okay. Here is what I recommend. Uh, I recommend getting everything out of your closet and sorting through it. So immediately you're not just like picking 33 out of everything you have, but you're going to go through everything you have and sort it into three piles. So you'll have the clothes you love the clothes that you want to get rid of and a maybe pile, which is going to be the biggest pile of all in most cases. And from there, I say, don't get rid of anything. Like don't donate anything. Don't sell anything. Don't make any of those decisions until after the three months are over. But instead, pull your 33 items from the clothes you love and maybe a little bit from the maybe pile if you don't love a lot of your clothes and then hide everything else. 
just get it out of sight because as we were talking about earlier with this like whole emotional connection, when it's out of sight, you forget about it, you lose interest and you kind of lose that tie that whatever it is that is making you hold on, it's not as strong. So after three months, you can make those decisions with more clarity. So I, I ultimately end up with yes, no, and maybes. Yep. And then I sort of got to look, I guess I got to look at the yeses and the maybes and, and, and the expression I like is shave the dog down to the 33. But then I put the, the no's and the maybes that aren't in my 33 yeses. I put those somewhere. I put them in boxes or I put them yep. in a spare bedroom or I get anywhere, my own house, wherever. But I don't, I don't have to have the anxiety of bringing them to Goodwill or, or, or lighting them on fire or anything. That's right. And we're going to go deal with what we do with that at the end of the three months. Right. And so basically what you're saying is here are the 33 items that I'm choosing and I have no recommendations or like, I don't care really what anyone puts in that collection. Like it's going to look a little different for everyone. Um, For me, I usually have four pair of shoes, a few pieces of outerwear, a couple of pieces of jewelry, five or six accessories, and then 18 to 20 actual like shirts, pants, skirt, dress clothing items. But that combination, there's no one right way to do it. It just depends on what you like and what your lifestyle is like. And then for three months, you're not going to bother with any of that other stuff. You're not going to go shopping and you're just going to go about your life and wear your favorite clothes. And so that sounds cool. And as a guy that wears mostly blue jeans and black t-shirts and blue t-shirts, this would be, doesn't sound like it would be that hard for me, but I wonder for people who maybe have more of a palette or maybe want more color or Mm. how do I, you know, I think, I don't know. You tell me if this is a sexualist as as LEG calls it, but women tend to be better at, at putting outfits together than men. I don't know. It's a generalization, I guess, but we don't know. Part of the reason I wear black and blue mostly is because I know it's all going to fit together pretty much. Very rarely does my wife go, that doesn't go with that because it's all black. (laughs) But if let's say I'm somebody who wants a bigger palette and let's say I'm somebody who doesn't know how to mix and match, how do I optimize my 33 to maybe have some color or have some variety when, you know, a guy like me would just do blue and black and call it a day? Yeah, you can definitely find some really great examples of colorful capsule wardrobes on Instagram and Pinterest. If you search hashtag project 333 anywhere on the internet, you'll come up with images. Um, I think you can do a probably do a Google search of it. But I've seen really colorful examples. Um, I've seen examples that are all black. I've seen everything in between. So you really can do it. And part of that is breaking those rules of what goes with what, because who decided that? Like, who decided that we can't wear certain colors with other colors? It makes no sense to me. Uh, So it really gives you a chance to be more creative if that's what you want. Or if you're more like me, like everything I own goes with everything I own. So I really can't mess it up. Or and I don't have to give much thought to it. And do you stick to a color palette that just works easily, nicely together? Is that part of how you do it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's mostly neutrals, but it it wasn't that way in the beginning. 
for sure. Like that very first season I did. And probably for that first year, because I was just working with what I had and I had everything. I had all different kinds of clothes, but slowly I gravitated towards more, I don't know, black, gray, olive, cream colors. Uh, So, but again, that's not a prescriptive. It's just what works best for me. Yeah, I do like how in the book you seem to be very non-judgmental about sort of whatever fashion thing you're trying to do or not do or whatever whatever it is you're trying to do. You're trying to direct people to sort of sort out what they want to wear and then make the 33 work as opposed to, well, you know, these colors or these types of outfits or these for this for men and that for women or whatever, whatever. It's sort of you, you give it you give us a lot of room to play. Yeah. I mean, I think most of us have kind of given over that agency to what we should wear to magazines and what we see other people wearing and marketers and whatnot. Like we haven't really been making those decisions for ourselves for a really long time. And to be able to curate a small wardrobe of clothes that actually fit your body and work for your lifestyle and that you enjoy wearing. I think that's very freeing, especially when you realize that nobody really cares what you're wearing. No one notices. I mean, when I first started this challenge, I was working full-time in advertising sales. And for a year, I was doing this challenge while at this job, going to community events, wearing the same exact dress to all of those events, meeting with clients, sales meetings, the whole nine yards, and no one noticed. Yeah. And then I I was like, why did I spend all that time dressing for other people when no one cares what I'm wearing? They're too busy worried about the fact that you might be worried about what they're wearing. (laughs) Yeah. And if nobody cares what I'm wearing, maybe they don't care about all of the other things that I think they care about too, and that they're judging me. Maybe they're not. But so then how do you juxtapose that if we sort of circle back to um, where we were earlier juxtapose that with, you know, as a salesperson in, in, in the marketing and advertising arena, um, you know, there's, there's your professionals and, uh, people in that industry tend to look a particular kind of way and and so forth and so on. And, um, if you show up and you look very different or you don't fit it, like clothes is a way to signal that I'm part of the tribe in some way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but I think a lot of that is what's going on in our brains instead of what's the reality of the situation. So we give that way too much pressure. So we were talking about that earlier. And what I'm saying is this challenge demonstrated to me that that was kind of a bunch of shit. Like nobody really cared. And I mean, granted, I wasn't completely dressing differently, but I definitely was dressing down for my job. You know, not what I thought was expected of me. And again, we just have this like fear or worry that everyone is thinking about us and they are not. Yeah. But in in a work environment, we do want to look, I don't know, professional, at least professional to the environment we're in, or or are you just saying, ah, fuck it. If you want to wear flip-flops and and board shorts, go for it. Well, I think there are probably, like, if you're a nurse, you're probably going to wear scrubs to work. There are certain arenas where you have to dress a certain way. You have a uniform. 
Um, and so depending on what your job is, if there is a uniform or they suggest you dress a certain way, I guess you have to do that for the terms of the job, but you don't have to do it to prove yourself, I guess is what I'm saying. I see. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, um, I never liked the way a tie felt around my neck, but I really like the way it looks. I like, a, I like a suit more than, than a blazer with pants or something. The, the kind of the cleanness of a suit. I mean, it looks great to me. And then I remember when the tie started to go away, I, I liked that because I didn't, I never liked the thing around my neck and I liked wearing a suit with an open neck shirt to work. I, I thought that was professional and you could look cool, but you could be comfortable and all that. And of course today, at least in Silicon Valley, um, if you show up wearing a suit with no tie you're going to be completely overdressed so much so that probably around particularly engineering type people uh, you'll be discounted as some kind of a suit or a finance guy or something is that the only thing they judge you on is what you're wearing well i hope not but the, it, I, the, I guess my too. point is it's just interesting to me over a 30 plus year career now to see how far the pen you know i remember when casual friday was a thing and now it's like flip-flop every day now i know it's not like that everywhere but you know even in manhattan um there are a lot of places where if you're wearing a tie in a business setting uh you're one of the few guys doing it yeah i i mean i think if you really dig that and you want to dress up you should and if you feel really good in what you're wearing why not wear what you want. And again, not that you're going to wear flip-flops to your sales job. I mean, I don't tell people what to wear, but I think closed toed shoes might be a good idea when you're working with other people. I don't know. That's just a personal thing. Or something. Yeah, of course. Um, now you are a, uh, one of the sort of uh, leaders or people who are out there in this whole minimalist uh, simplicity, um, you know, tiny houses, like there's this whole threat thread now in our world of sort of pare shit down to have a better life. Mm. Uh, tell me a little bit about sort of the ahas or sort of how you got to, uh, and now I want to have a more minimalist life kind of broadly. Sure. Well, I'll tell you really specifically what, why I did it to begin with. And that was because I got really sick in 2006. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis after feeling really bad for several months. I thought I had an ear infection. I kept pushing and pushing and really ignoring that it was something more than it was. And when I found out what it was and did a little research, uh, everything that I read kind of pointed to stress as being a really big problem with this condition. And so I made a goal for myself in a very type A personality kind of way to eliminate stress from my life, uh, which was kind of ironic since I spent my whole life just like piling stress on in, at every opportunity. So I didn't plan to simplify my life. I just planned to get rid of the stress. And as it turns out, simplicity was the best way to do that. So I noticed with all the changes I was making, it was simplicity that was kind of this common thread. 
Um, I don't live in a tiny house that's too small for my liking, but I did downsize from a big house to a small apartment and made a lot of other pretty big changes in my life to, again, eliminate stress. And when I think about it now, I still don't want, like, it's never been my goal to have a simple life. I just want to have a life. Like I want to be able to show up for my life and enjoy it and not be a disaster and stressed out all the time. I I love that's a life goal. My life goal is to not be a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we got to start somewhere, right? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And so, um, you know, and I've heard you talk about this before, but it sounds like getting diagnosed with MS was a wake-up call around, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm, I'm curious how you think about it, but that you had designed a life for yourself and you realized, wait a minute, why did I, why did I end up here? It's sort of like, I don't know if you remember that old talking head song where David Byrne says, you know, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful house. You know, remember that song? It's totally. Like, yeah. I remember that. That was your wake up call. It definitely was. Uh, I realized I just couldn't keep pushing myself and my body and had to stop. Like I just had to stop. And I was always like, I think where this kind of illusion of needing more came from is that it was that quick fix. It always solved the problem. Like when I was in debt, I thought I'll just work more and make more money and then I'll be able to pay off my debt. But the more I worked and didn't enjoy my work, the more I thought I deserved to spend money to like ease that pain as we were talking about. And so, uh, you know, were you on that hamster trail where it's like, I, I you know, I, I have this high pressure, high power job to make all this money so I can buy all this stuff so that I can advance in my high power career to buy more stuff. And it, it's oh, sort yeah. of, it, it sounds a lot like that, right? I was on the, the wheel for sure. And I'm, I'm reminded of that Lily Tomlin quote. I just love her. And she says, you know, the problem with the rat race is even if you win, you're still a rat. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It sounds like you also got yourself in a bunch of debt as well. And that was creating uh, problems for you in your life. Yes. Tons of debt. I mean, I went into debt before I ever stepped foot in a college classroom. So as soon as that credit card was available, I was on it and actively using it. And at some point in my early 20s, I was, and I'm not saying this because I'm proud of it, but just so you can see where my head was at, it wasn't in math. Like I was never very good at math. So I don't know why I thought this would work, but I was using one credit card to pay off the other. And we all know how that ends up. So I just kept going on that trajectory, like, oh, well, I'm already in debt. So my credit score is in the toilet. Why does it matter at this point? I may as well just keep going. And that was the situation you found yourself in when you got diagnosed? You were mm-hmm. still sort very, of in that moment? Yep. Very deep in debt, working all the time, very stressed out, always trying to make ends meet. Uh, and I didn't need to be in that situation. I put myself in that situation. And it wasn't until I was faced with this, you know, potentially chronic debilitating disease that I I could say, stop, like this is not working for you. Do something different. And again, I didn't know what that different would look like. Um, I certainly didn't think it would look like quitting my job and blogging and writing about simplicity. 
Uh, if you had told me that, I, there was no way I would believe that that would have happened. That you could make a, a, a living blogging and podcasting and writing and so forth. Or just that I would have even gone in that direction. Yeah. And so if I'm somebody uh, who's at a place in life where either something's been thrust upon me, uh, like you had, or maybe something hasn't been thrust upon me, but I sort of have woken up and realized, you know, per the Lily, Lily Tomlin quote, like, why, why, why am I doing all this fucking bullshit? Like, I don't, and I don't want any of this stuff and I'm in debt. So regardless of sort of whether it's an external or internal motivator, if I'm someone who finds myself at that place and I say to you, okay, Courtney, what do I do to affect the kind of stop, change, start that, that you made? I mean, you're now on the other side of, of the hill that a lot of people want to try and climb. Yeah, many, many years later. Like this was not a, an overnight process by any means. And I'm still making changes in my life to feel healthier and be more present. So I think first and foremost, I'm not setting my sight on the finish line. I'm really thinking about only what's the next step. So I think in, a, in most cases, stress is a problem when you get to that point. And I think most of us get these wake-up calls long before we get the big wake-up call um, like I got, but we just shut them down because we're so busy. We don't have time <laughs> to deal with them. Like we're busy, we're stressed out. <laughs> How do we have time to deal with a wake-up call? But if you can start to pay attention and listen, you probably know what is and isn't working in your life already. And just think about what is that next step? Like what is the, the real stressor in your life or the biggest one? And how can you start to work on that? Uh, it, it didn't look like for me, like, okay, I'm diagnosed with MS. I'm going to quit my job and sell my house and get rid of all my stuff. It was a diet change. It started there. And then it was, let's consider getting rid of this debt. What will that look like? And then while we were paying off the debt, we and weren't shopping and bringing stuff into the house, I started to understand how my clutter was also stressful. So just one thing led to the next. So you don't have to have this grand plan. You just have to start with the next step. And it sounds like in your case, if I'm, if I'm following your trajectory, right, you started off with uh, this debt. We got uh, to get this under control. Is that where you started? It started with diet for me, but debt came quickly after okay. that. that was the, yeah, the debt was really awful. Like it was really stressful collection calls, but also something I had been dealing with for so long that I convinced myself it was okay and that everybody was living like that. And a lot of people I knew were. So to have a car payment and credit card payments and student loans and a big house payment, all of that stuff felt pretty normal. Uh, but now when I look at it, when, when, once it was gone, like that lift of stress and pressure is just incredible. Mm. And so you don't have that debt problem and uh, you don't feel those pressures that those calls aren't coming. Correct. And what did you do? Uh, uh, you know, uh, and by the way, this is a side note. I don't know why we don't teach basic sort of personal and family finances in high school. Yeah, like what I agree. Card is, how to save money, the whole idea of, of, of make more than you spend, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like the, the good, te the simple teachings, rich dad, poor dad, basic, good, 
financial hygiene. And in point of fact, not only do we not teach high school kids that, they go to college and the credit card companies come right at you, don't they? They sure do. I mean, probably the best thing that my daughter went through, she's 24 now, but she got to watch us as a, a, you know, a young teenager, watch us go through paying down debt and becoming debt free. And just, I think living through that made her realize that debt is just the worst and not to go into debt. And so luckily she hasn't, but I don't think me telling her that while I was in debt would have been very impactful. She saw it. Yeah. Right. And there's this other thing called saving up. There's another way to buy shit. Save up for it. <laughs> and what's funny is when you save your money, you don't want to spend it on crap. Like it's so much easier to spend it on a credit card <laughs> on without your money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also curious, just as a side note, uh, Courtney, what were the kinds of things you did for your diet? Uh, so initially, and I've I've made a lot of changes and I guess I'll continue to keep changing all the time because my body's changing. But initially I cut out most animal products. Um, so all meat, all seafood, all dairy. And then over the years, I brought some seafood back in some fish and started focusing more on like fruits and vegetables and less on carbs. Because even though I became a vegetarian, I was really just eating a lot of pasta, I think, for the first little bit of that. So just really thinking about food that makes me feel good and getting rid of the others or moderating the other stuff pretty significantly. And how has that affected uh, your MS? Well, I think that's just a portion of it. I think that plus working with a great neurological team plus eliminating most of the stress from my life and, and really paring down. I haven't had a relapse since 2007. And I'm continually screened for MS progression. I'll have you know MRIs done. And there's been zero in nothing in terms of progress. So no new lesions. Uh, and I feel good. Like I feel better than I did even before I had MS. And that was a long time ago. So even being older, I still feel better. <laughs> That's a pretty radical statement to make, isn't it, lady? <laughs> for sure. For sure. But it's the truth. Like I have more energy. Um, I'm not so like just flustered and distracted and overwhelmed all the time. I think that makes such a huge difference. Like how we feel mentally affects how we feel physically. I know that's not breaking news, but it's, I, I, I'll just say what's in my head. It's almost damaging to talk about them as separate things. It totally is. They are so right. intertwined. You can't. Yeah. Well, I think the, the work that you've done is incredibly inspiring. I'm glad to hear you're feeling so healthy. And uh, I think it's fun that your life took this um, uh, very unexpected uh, twist and turn after you got this bad news. And, um, you know, you've now turned it into this whole other second life. Yeah. Courtney land is a pretty good place to be right now. <laughs> well, it's been fun visiting. And I, uh, I also think that, um, uh, remind me your daughter's name again, Courtney. Bailey. Bailey. How could I forget? Yeah. The two of you have a great dynamic on your new podcast. I think you're fantastic. We're having so much fun with that. Thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, no, it's fun. I, I, I listened to the bunch of the episodes and, um, I, I think, um, 
I have no doubt it's being successful, but I, I, I'd be surprised if you don't find a very large audience because the two of you are good together. And uh, I think a lot of people will get into it. Thank you. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Uh, no, just thank you so much for chatting. I re- really enjoyed our conversation. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for writing this wonderful book. It's uh, It's been fun for me as a guy that never really thought about it to get into it. And you made me think about a lot of things and talk to my wife about a lot of things. And uh, I think you're awesome. I'm glad. I think you're awesome too. Thanks, Courtney. Now, wasn't that fun? Wasn't that interesting? Even for a guy like me who never even thinks about his wardrobe other than, you know, am I going to wear the black t-shirt or the blue t-shirt? <laughs> I sure hope you enjoyed Courtney as much as I do. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Courtney Carver. Her new book is out. Check out Project 333, the minimalist fashion challenge that proves less really is so much more. That's Project 333. The good folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Uh, My friends, it's Socrates.ai. Do your people think your company is awesome? Socrates is a digital communications hub. And what that means is imagine being able to text or talk any HR-related question into your phone and get it answered. That's where Socrates comes in. Visit S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I today and get employee awesome. Um... need to remind you that this oddcast is the sole property of the lockhead oddcast network all rights do remain perturbed uh we must warn you that clearly this oddcast was created in a studio that does contain nuts we are produced and edited by living podcast legend jason DeFilippo, website and technical awesomeness by jamie j and sarah knox show notes by the incomparable diane gervasio and we want to do some special shout outs today to lydia taylor uh, Manny Camara, Steve Watt, Jonathan Marciano, John Ruggi, Scott Brody, Morgan Wright, Ken Kinney, the shark himself. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, The Shark's Perspective. And Matthew, A.K. Bear Lux. He wrote a song for us on episode 109. Me and uh, guest David Osborne were talking about how um, you should... <laughs> How you should do form to function and we thought that would make a funny song and bear Lux turned it into a song visit the show notes for this episode to hear that song also want to thank alex medic scott athan t faircloth ramsey smith mitchell earl chip franks tom schwab lorraine fox deb wolf john woodcock david schimberg and if we left anyone out who's been kind uh, to us lately i apologize we love you we love you thank you so much for listening uh thank you candy dandy love you mom and dad and hey colin this oddcast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go to nick denton founder of gawker sorry nick we just ran out of time for you that's it my friends i deeply uh deeply appreciate you investing your life with us stay legendary and until we're together again Follow your different.